welcome to the podcast of the Vine Church in Fullerton, California. For more information, visit thevineoc.com. Well, good morning to everyone who's gathered here today. I, I'm Mike McNichols, and I'm, I'm really happy that we're together. If, if you're new to The Vine and you would like to get more information or find um, other ways to connect, just email us at hello at thevine.com. Uh, I'm sorry, hello at thevineoc.com, and we'll be happy to respond to you. And I, I know these are uh, very challenging times, and we're not able to meet in person right now, but there are still things that are going on here. On Tuesday nights from 7 to 8 o'clock, we continue to meet in online small groups, uh, in those groups, we have a time of worship, of reflection, sharing, and prayer for one another. And if you'd like to join us, just go to our homepage and click on Vine Midweek Gathering, or you can just email us at hello at thevineoc.com, and we'll be happy to send you the Zoom link. And our children are involved in the Vine as well, as you just saw in the lighting of the Advent candles. <clears throat> we have uh, weekly online small groups that are specially designed for our kids. We have very loving and dedicated leaders that guide them through their time together. And the kids will be meeting this coming week, and then they're going to take a, a short break for the holidays. And the Laundry Shower Ministry continues to serve our friends in need. Uh, they gather on the first and third Saturdays of the month. And this may be something that you're interested in getting involved in. And uh, if you'd like to join in with this ministry to the homeless and needy in our community, feel free to reach out once again at hello at thevineoc.com. Now, if you happen to miss the town hall meeting that we had on November 22nd, but you'd still like to watch a recording of, us, of it, just send a request to hello at thevineoc.com. And you can also ask for a written copy of the document that we use that described our work of discernment on the church council. And if you're part of the Vine, I, I think this is something that would be very helpful for you to read. And now let's enter into a time of giving. <clears throat> we believe that generosity is part of our worship to God and we give so that our church's shared life of worship and ministry is sustained and continued, even in this challenging time. And our giving is actually a response to the generosity of God, whose love, grace, and care has been poured out upon us. Now, after we pray, <clears throat> the ways to give will be shown on the screen. So let's pray together as we prepare to give. Lord, teach us to give freely and generously. Let nothing in this world keep us from reflecting your generosity. Let us trust that when we are generous, you will ensure that our needs are taken care of, for you are our good shepherd. Amen. Praise God And now a reading from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. 
Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term, that her penalty is paid, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries out, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all people shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry out, and I say, What shall I cry? All people are grass. Their constancy is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good tidings. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good tidings. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. See, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. His reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead the mother sheep. And this, through the words of the prophet, is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> and now the gospel, according to Mark. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And this is the Gospel of the Lord. Well, <clears throat> on this second Sunday of Advent, we reflect on the two themes of hope and expectation. In the opening to gospel of, uh, the Gospel of Mark, like in the other Gospel accounts, uh, that expectation frames the coming of Jesus, and, and it's made earthy and loud in the person of John the Baptizer. Now, hold on a second. I know that we often call John the Baptist, but using the term baptizer keeps, you know, the Presbyterians and the Lutherans and even the Anglicans from feeling like they've been excluded. And as with the great ancient prophet Isaiah, expectation finds voice with John. And for him, expectation is more than just a, a private sense of anticipation. It's a public proclamation making the audacious claim that hope is on the horizon. Now, unlike the gospel accounts of Matthew and Luke, Mark doesn't spend any time at all on the story of Jesus' birth. He cuts right to the appearance of John and the subsequent appearance of Jesus, both we meet as adults. 
Now, it's interesting that this would be our text this morning, since we know that, you know, Advent precedes Christmas, which is our celebration of the birth of Jesus, and we usually think about meeting him as a baby. But Mark's account is a good reminder that as important as Jesus' birth is to us, the true importance lies in Jesus himself and, and the great work of God that will be done through him. And for all four gospel writers, John the baptizer is a key player in the beginning of this story. <clears throat> you know, it's helpful to stop and think about why people like John were considered important to the story of Jesus. Uh, John had a ministry of his own, calling people to repentance, baptizing them as a sign of God's forgiveness for sins. But John also recognized that he himself was a sign that pointed to the one who was yet to come, one who would baptize the people in the Holy Spirit. The Gospel writers characterized John as a, a kind of Isaiah figure, one who called the people of Israel to repentance, but who also pointed ahead to a rescue that was yet to come. Isaiah spoke to a people in exile, and our Old Testament text this morning is the beginning of Isaiah's anticipation that their Babylonian exile was coming to an end and they would soon be able to return home to Jerusalem. And indeed, that did happen. By the time John showed up, centuries, of course, were gone, just like the Assyrians before them. But now, as we know, the Romans were in town, an ongoing reality that reminded the people of Israel that the troubles they had been experiencing for hundreds of years were not over yet. Worse, they understood the troubles to be their own fault, a result of Israel's long-running unfaithfulness to God. So John shouts his Isaiah-like message and calls the people to repentance and to receive forgiveness of sins. John reminds the people that God has always been in the business of forgiveness. Sometimes, sometimes we talk about forgiveness of sins as though God really wasn't much interested in the project until Jesus died on the cross. Now, Jesus did indeed die on the cross, but God was interested in forgiving sins from the very beginning of the Bible. For example, in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve get into trouble, Rather than destroying them, you know, getting rid of them and just starting the thing all over again, God lets them suffer the consequences of their actions, but he also reaches out to them. He, he gives them clothing to wear so that they won't be ashamed of their nakedness. He meets them right in the broken place that they are and cares for them. Or in the book of Jonah. We know that story. God sends the prophet to Nineveh so that the people will repent and be forgiven. And they do. The, the, the people of Nineveh respond as they should. They experience God's forgiveness. And the whole Jewish sacrificial system invited people into God's forgiveness. The people knew that there was provision for forgiveness of sins. You see, the, the God of the Bible is not one who is reluctant to forgive. And John the baptizer reminds the people of God's desire and invites them into the river to get soaked by forgiveness. But John doesn't stop there. He points ahead to Jesus, 
who will soak the people with the Holy Spirit. There's something new on the horizon, and it will be something more than people ever expected. You know, in the Bible, forgiveness of sin includes, but is not limited to, personal transgressions and offenses. We often think about sins. We think of my sins, your sins, things that we've done, things that we haven't done. But in the Bible, forgiveness also points to liberation from exile, rescue from enslavement, rescue from exile, which was a result of the sins of the entire people of Israel, a people who had, by and large, forgotten about God. Now, some who were being baptized by John may have hoped that in their own personal repentance, that God would just move a little bit closer in releasing them from the control of the Romans. In fact, liberating them from their in-house exile. But when Jesus appears on the scene, he doesn't seem all that interested in the Romans' current domination of Israel. He's more concerned that the people of God would remember who they really are. And mostly they don't do that. But in Jesus' death and resurrection and through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the people of God would be reborn by faith. And this idea of the rebirth of the people of God is important. After the ancient Hebrew people were rescued from Egypt, God informs Moses of the new identity he has planned for the people. Keep in mind, their identity up to this point was as a slave population. For generations, that's all they knew. But now in Exodus chapter 19, God tells Moses to say to the people, If you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. Well, we, we know that eventually the, the people serving in the roles of priests in ancient Israel would become ones who, who stood in the gap between the people and God. The priest would serve God while simultaneously serving the people. Sacrifices would be offered to God by the priest, and he would do so on behalf of the people. And in his very role, in his very vocation, the priest would bear witness to the God who had rescued them from enslavement in Egypt. God's intention for the Hebrew people was not only that they would have priests of their own, but also that they would be priestly as a nation. The people of Israel were to be a people that served God on behalf of the world. Their very existence was to bear witness to God for the sake and blessing of the world. Now, of course, we know from Scripture, people didn't always do all that well in cooperating with God's plan. And so prophets like Isaiah came on the scene, calling the people back to the identity that God had granted to them. And a lot of the time, the people just didn't listen. Well, John stood in that tradition of calling the people back to their identity as the people of God for the sake and blessing of the world. Yes, forgiveness of sins truly was personal, but it was also aimed at freeing the people from all their generational obstacles and encumbrances. You know, things like idol worship and, and internal corruption and their own amnesia about God. 
so that they could once again be the true people of God. And consistent with the prophetic tradition, he points to something new that's going to happen. And the new thing that happens in terms of forgiveness of sins is that rather than keeping sin at bay, kind of managing it through ongoing sacrificial practices, the very power of sin is broken through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Right along with evil and death, sin is exposed as the fraud that it is. Yes, sin continues to be real and destructive, but in and through Jesus, God has shown that sin's back has been snapped in two. In essence, sin is in its death throes. The calling for us to be God's people for the sake and blessing of the world has never gone away. It's often been corrupted and it's been disguised in many ways over the years, but the call to be that people never goes away. It never ends. We see God's words from Exodus 19 that I read earlier echoed in St. Peter's second letter when he writes, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people who are God's own possession. You have become this people so that you may speak of the wonderful acts of the one who called you out of darkness into his amazing light. Peter uses language that at one time would be reserved only for the people of Israel. But now he characterized those who have trusted in Jesus, both Jew and Gentile, to be the royal priesthood and the holy nation that serves both God and the world. You see, we learn from these texts of Scripture that our true identity as Christians, as the people of God, is both personal and corporate. It's about you and me, but it's also about all of us. Yes, we are persons who have been forgiven of our sins, but at the same time, we are a people who have been called out of darkness and into God's amazing light. You know, I have to admit, I sometimes worry about the alternate identities that often try to overshadow who we really are. In nations where a majority of people make some sort of claim to Christian faith, and there's a number of nations like, like the U.S., people can too easily start to think that their national identity and their Christian identity are the same thing. And also today we see many Christians in our country characterized simply as a specific block of voters that have to be appeased by politicians. And there are other identities that are caricatures of who we are called to be. Some are inflicted upon us, and others are, very sadly, earned. John baptized people and pointed them to the hope that was coming soon. For us, just like the people in John's day, hope is always on the horizon because we believe that God is active and at work in the world. But in our time, if, if we think that hope is only about getting rid of COVID or resolving our political crises the way we want or repairing our economy, then our hope is probably short-sighted. Our hope is active, not passive. 
It's hope that in the one who has come to us in the person of Jesus, we will remember who we are and be the people of God's intentions. Signs factor very significantly in the Bible. In, in particular, Jesus did many things, ranging from the miraculous, like, like healings and exorcisms, to the relational, like dining with tax collectors and sinners and that type of thing. And all of that comes, comes under the category of signs and wonders. Uh, and Jesus' followers did those kinds of things as well. John the baptizer himself was a sign of the hope that was coming. And so might we, as a people in the midst of a global crisis, also be such a sign? Well, we know that a sign points to something beyond itself. Jesus heals someone or casts out a demon or raises a dead person to life, and those things are signs that point to a time in the future when God will make all things right. John understood that he himself was a physical sign that pointed to Jesus, the one who was to come. Now, if you've ever been on a road trip and gotten into some community you don't know much about and you've gotten lost, especially at night, you know the great relief that comes when you discover a sign on the road that directs you to the place where you want to go. Now, certainly you don't stop and camp out at the sign because that's not your destination. You go to where the sign directs you. And I do keep wondering and praying about how God is directing us during this time. For many people, it, it's a dark time and, and it feels lost. And people desperately want a sign that, that things will get better. And some will grasp at signs that are pointing to something reasonable and, and helpful, things like vaccines. While others will seize narratives that point to fictions and falsehoods. So who are we to be? in the midst of this turmoil? Well, to put it quite simply, I, I think we are to be a sign that points to Jesus. We are to be a sign that points to the reality of the kingdom of God that has come near, that is at hand, that was inaugurated in the coming of Jesus. The way that we respond to calls for safety during this time of restriction the way that we help others with a sense of perspective and reasonableness, the way that we reach out to care for those in need, those are all signs of a reality that is anchored in our trust in God and in the hope that God will work in ways that surprise us. For us, signs of the kingdom of God are both inward and outward. They are inward because in our worship and prayer and devotion, we submit ourselves to being formed by the Holy Spirit in deeper and deeper ways. And in doing so, we remember who we are and become physical signs of the kingdom of God. And signs are also out outward because from the inner life that the Spirit forms, we are able to extend ourselves outward to the people around us to loved ones, to friends, to neighbors, and point to a way that rescues them from hopelessness and despair. We are called to be a priestly people. In being that kind of people, we bear witness to the truth of God's present kingdom. 
into the Lordship of Jesus. And may it be so in and among us today. Even in our desire to be faithful to God and to the identity and the gifts that God has given to us, we, we pause now to recognize and confess our failure to always be that kind of people, even to be a people of hope and expectation. And so we come to the God who knows us, the one for whom we wait with anticipation, expectation, hope. And we tell the truth about ourselves now. We tell the truth about ourselves to God who already knows us. And we trust in God's loving grace and forgiveness, seeking to be refreshed and renewed by his spirit. And looking ahead with confidence to that time that is yet to come when we are invited into the fullness of God's kingdom. And we engage in confession, not only for our own sakes, we do this as a priestly people seeking God's forgiveness for our broken world. <clears throat> and so we pray together. God of all ages, who from generation to generation has heard the cries of your children, humbly seeking forgiveness, and has welcomed sinners back into your embrace, hear the thoughts of our hearts, examine our motives, <clears throat> and forgive us our faults. We ask this through your Son, who died and rose, that we might know the true cost of forgiveness. Amen. And now, may the God of love and power forgive us and free us from our sins, heal and strengthen us by his Spirit, and raise us to new life in Christ our Lord. Amen. <clears throat>